Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. As you look back over the history of campaign finance in the United States, what you see is largely a reactionary system. It was almost always a reaction to some sort of public scandal. So one of the first recorded campaign finance laws was actually during colonial times in Virginia with the House of Burgess. People were mad. This is so this is such a fun historical story. They were mad at George Washington because he was basically bribing voters with alcohol. So he ran for the first seat when he was 24 and he attributed his defeat to the failure to provide enough booze for the voters. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Today we're going to do one of my favorite things, five things to know about campaign finance. I don't know if you've heard, Sarah, but like a billion people are running for president and they're mm-hmm. all raising boatloads of money. And this seems like a good time to refresh ourselves on what the rules are around that raising of money. Before we dive in to five things you need to know about campaign finance, we're very excited. The tickets for the California Stops in the Nuance Nation tour are on sale. So the website to get your tickets in California will be in the show notes, and we'll be sharing that on social media as well. Keep your eyes open for other cities as those tickets go on sale. We just can't wait to start flying around meeting all of y'all. It's going to be great. Every time I get an email that says, I'm going to see you in this city, it just touches my heart. But can I be real? We got a real busy month before we start kicking off this tour. So we have campaign finance intro on Friday. On Tuesday, we'll be back in y'all's ears sharing our thoughts about the current state of campaign finance and, oh, 
do I have some? Then we have Robert Mueller's testimony. Then we have the next Democratic 2020 debate. And then we are both going on vacation. And so we have a series of very special content we can't wait to share with you guys. We have put together little primer interviews on several of the constitutional amendments. You know, we all spout off about freedom of speech and the right to bear arms and search and seizure, but often we're talking past each other or we're talking about different things or we have a different understanding based on our personal experience versus sort of the historical record. And we wanted to just let's get to zero on all these constitutional amendments. And so we can't wait to share that content with you later in the month. But we're all going to be busy. We're all going to be very, very busy. So let's dive right in because like with many of our five things you need to know, there are a lot more than five things and there are many bullet points under each one. So we're going to start. Number one, campaign finance has its own language. So let's go through the pantsuit politics glossary of campaign finance. One of the big ways campaign finance and talking about campaign finance breaks down is contributions, which is what a candidate is taking in, and spending, which is what a candidate is going out of their coffers on ads or mailings or a sundry other things. Some people like to buy nail files, you know, whatever. And so I think that if you can just orient your space, orient yourself in the space where they're going to be talking about contributions and spending, let's at least start there. Now, that, spoiler alert, that breakdown's going to get a little fuzzy in parts, but let's at least start there. I do want to say, though, several people have said, just why is there so much money involved in campaigns? And ads are part of it. Nail files and signs are part of it. But beyond messaging, these campaigns build an infrastructure that looks like a corporation for a couple of years. And they have to pay people. They have to provide health insurance for those people. You know, there are all kinds of expenses just embedded in the organizational structure around these campaigns. So as tempting as it is to just be like, there's way too much money going on here. And there is. It is still a very expensive enterprise. And so we've got to make a little room for the fact that it costs more than any of us think it should under the best systems to run a campaign in the United States. So we're talking about contributions. We're talking about spending. And then we have all these other terms that get thrown around a lot when we talk about campaign finance. First, you have hard money. These are campaign contributions regulated and limited by the federal government that are given directly to a candidate. Hard money contributions. Then... You have soft money, which is unlimited and unregulated campaign contributions to federal candidates and the national parties, supposedly for, quote unquote, party building activities. So not in support of a specific candidate, but in support of activities like get out the vote drives or bumper stickers or, quote unquote, issue ads. So you're going to hear those terms a lot, too. Hard money, soft money. The other two terms you're going to hear a lot are political action committees. These are political committees that raise or spend more than $1,000 to influence the outcome of an election. They are required to register with the Federal Elections Commission. They can accept contributions up to $5,000 from any individual. They may not accept corporate donations or donations from labor unions. And the PACs established by corporations or union themselves are called separate segregated funds and have slightly separate rules as far as what they have to use on spending for to influence election and what they can use on administrative expenses. So we have political action committees, and then we have super PACs, so super political action committees. Now, these are independent, 
expenditure-only political campaign committees, and they can accept unlimited funds from any non-foreign source, including unions or corporate treasury funds. They can spend unlimited amounts, hence the super part of their name, but may not contribute directly to a candidate or coordinate their spending with the candidate. Contributions and expenses to super plaques are disclosed to the Federal Election Committee's website. Then we have dark money. I feel like there should be a sound effect around that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dark money is where a lot of the conversation about campaign finance is right now. This refers to spending by nonprofit organizations that are not required to disclose their donors. These organizations can raise unlimited donations from corporations, individuals, and unions. And foreign corporations, too. They do this by avoiding eight sets of magic words. This comes from a Supreme Court decision that we're going to talk about in a second. But if you are not using words like vote for, elect, support, cast your ballot for, Smith for Congress, vote against, defeat or reject, you are able to spend all kinds of money without any disclosure around it. And you're able to do that through a couple of different vehicles. So a 527 group is a tax-exempt organization created to raise money for political activities, such as voter mobilization efforts and issue ads. 501c groups are nonprofit tax-exempt interest groups that can engage in varying levels of political activity. And then under 501c, you have 501c3s. These are traditional charitable organizations that are tax-exempt. So the donations to these organizations are tax-deductible. And then 501c4 organizations are organized to promote social welfare. These are tax-exempt organizations, but donations are not tax deductible. And this is where a lot of the dark money resides. These are organizations like AARP and NOW and the NAACP and the ACLU and the Sierra Club. These organizations, along with 501c5s and 6s, which are unions and trade associations, don't have any requirement whatsoever to disclose their donors. Now, that doesn't mean everything they do is terrible. Some of these organizations run really important advertising to alert their members about issues of importance to them. But it is also where a lot of money is getting spent right now without the public knowing why it's being spent that way. So you also have public funding in the United States. Eligible candidates receive federal government funds to pay for the qualified expenses of their campaigns in both primary and general elections. So our tax dollars, we all see that little, do you want to contribute $3 to the public funding of presidential candidates on our forms? So those tax dollars, if you check the box, are used to either match the first 250 of each contribution from individuals that an eligible presidential candidate receives during the primary, or two, fund the majority party nominees' general election campaigns and assist eligible minor party nominees. So to be eligible, you must seek the nomination by political party, raise more than $5,000 in each of at least 20 states, counting only the first 250 of any individual contribution, so at least 20 contributors in at least 20 states. It's a lot like the Democratic primary or the Democratic debate requirements. You must agree to limit campaign spending for all primary elections combined to something about $50 million. This number started at $10 million, but has received, like, cost of living inflation increases every year. And limit spending in each state based on a formula. So this system hasn't been used much in the last two presidential elections. In 2016, only Martin O'Malley and Jill Stein certified funds in the public system. In 2012, it was just Buddy Raymer of the Americans Elect and the Reform Party, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. 
So Obama was famously the first presidential campaign in 2008 to forego public funding so that he didn't have those spending limits. On the website, the FEC website, there is a spreadsheet where you can look at every past election since public financing was passed in Congress and see who took it and how much money they got. And it's really fascinating. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But important to remember here, you can only get public financing assistance if you are running with a party. So someone like Mark Charles, who is running as a pure independent, cannot access these funds. The last thing to know in our glossary here is that we're spending our time today on federal laws about campaign finances, but states can regulate expenditures, too, within some limits. States can't prohibit corporations from contributing money to ballot proposals. They can't set contribution limits to ballot initiatives. They can, however, limit the amount of money that any one individual or group can contribute to a state campaign. So just keep your eye on the fact that states have different laws and initiatives. Crystal Quaid, who's been on the podcast before, has worked really hard on transparency and ethics around state campaign finance in Missouri, and those efforts are happening across the country. We are going to spend our time on the federal system from here on out. So the second thing we want you to know about campaign finance is that as you look back over the history of campaign finance in the United States, what you see is largely a reactionary system. It was almost always a reaction to some sort of public scandal. So one of the first recorded campaign finance laws was actually during colonial times in Virginia with the House of Burgess. People were mad. This is so this is such a fun historical story. They were mad at George Washington because he was basically bribing voters with alcohol. So he ran for the first seat when he was 24 and he attributed his defeat to the failure to provide enough booze for the voters. So when he tried again two years later, he had 144 gallons of rum, punch, hard cider, and beer that his election agents handed out. So roughly a half gallon for every vote he received. So they passed a bill in the House of Burgesses prohibiting any money, meat, drink, entertainment to be provided in exchange for a vote. So when we first see campaign finance, it's this, it's really about money going from the candidate to the voter and money sometimes in the form of booze. Then we moved to the patronage system, which basically means, hey, you help me get elected, I'll get you a nice job. This system has always existed, arguably still exists in a number of ways, but it grew substantially under Andrew Jackson, who was also the first presidential candidate to solicit outside financing because he had all these newly enfranchised, non-property-owning white males to reach. He argued that this was all more democratic instead of having a system of bureaucrats, so it was no problem for him to put his buddies into positions. However, this took a dark turn when James Garfield was assassinated by a frustrated patronage seeker. So our system underwent its first major campaign finance reform when it eliminated the patronage system through the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act. This act made it illegal for government officials to solicit contributions from any civil service workers or award these positions based on anything but merit. So we get rid of the patronage system, and that brings us basically to the progressive era. And we have this big scandal with William McKinley's 1896 presidential campaign. His party chairman, Mark Hanna, took the use of corporate money to really, a really new level. He's a revolutionary in a way, I guess. He solicited unprecedented sums of money from his wealthiest friends and business partners who were adamantly opposed to the populist candidate William Jennings Bryant. 
He led these efforts led to the first use of modern mass media tactics to influence voters and a landslide victory for McKinley. But this growing progressive movement was having none of it. So part of the call came from Teddy Roosevelt. He called for a ban on corporate contributions. So you have corporate contribution to candidates that were made illegal in the Tillman Act of 1907, followed by the Federal Corrupt Practices Act in 1911, which required disclosure. You also see in 1913 a change to the Constitution that allows the direct election of senators, which had previously been elected by state legislators. Okay, so we we get that. We get some some campaign finance on the books. But in 1925, after the Teapot Dome corruption scandal, you get additional legislation with the Federal Corrupt Practices Act. So this is the big piece of legislation that really remains the backbone until the 1970s. But the problem is it's basically unenforceable. You have these requirements, but you have no real government entity in charge of enforcing them or no way for basically to put any punishment or any meat behind these laws. We're going to talk about the next scandal, basically Watergate, that prompts more legislation as we get to part three. The third thing you need to know about campaign finance law is that the Supreme Court doesn't like it and has Mm. repeatedly struck down attempts to regulate in this area. They struck down the regulation of primaries and the nominating process that came from the progressive era in Newberry versus the United States. This came back around in another case later, but that's kind of the first swipe. And then it's really important to understand the next landmark piece of legislation to follow the court from there. So in the 1970s, the Federal Election Campaign Act comes along. The public has been through Watergate. They are going through the Vietnam War. There are all these social movements agitating for change. And we have the campaign watchdog group, Common Cause, a name that's probably familiar because we just heard Common Cause (laughs) edit again in the partisan gerrymandering case that the court just decided. You also have Common Cause in the citizenship. That's who the daughter went to when she found the hard drive, yo, was Common Cause. So Common Cause sued both the Democratic and Republican National Committees for violating the Federal Corrupt Practices Act. And it lost, but it exposed all of the limitations of the law to the public, and that helped usher in the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1972. This is the first time we've tried comprehensive campaign finance regulation. And this is where we get a disclosure requirement that actually creates a money trail. It's the first time we could trace donations to individuals so that wealthy people could not be secret benefactors of politicians behind the scenes. So you see all these requirements and you also see limits. So you have individual contributions limited to $1,000 for any single candidate per election and an overall annual limitation of $25,000 for any contributor. You have independent expenditures by individuals and groups relative to clearly identified candidates limited to $1,000 a year. And then campaign spending by candidates for various federal offices were subject to prescribed limits. So you have limits on the contributions and you have limits on the expenditures. And what's so interesting is you really see the difference of this legislation almost immediately. So congressional campaign spending reporting from 1968 before this law was passed was $8.5 million. In 1972, the congressional campaign spending reports go to 
$88.9 million. So even either we saw a 10 times increase in spending, or maybe we just got better under this legislation of requiring disclosures about where the money was going. So you see this first passage of the bill in 1972, and then especially after Watergate, when people learn the depths of the money flowing into the Nixon campaign, you get some amendments. And that amendment is what established the enforcement, particularly the Federal Election Commission. Remember, this is all hard money that we're talking about. These are direct contributions to political campaigns. This does not touch on the soft money and dark money side of things. Before we move on, I would just like to insert a fun fact about one Senator Mitch McConnell. In 1973, the now Senator from Kentucky, then a lawyer in Louisville, wrote an op-ed in the Louisville Courier-Journal suggesting public financing of elections, public disclosure of donors, and spending limits on elections because he saw all of this money as a real cancer on our system. So just hang Mm -hmm. on to that Mm -hmm. as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Put a pin in that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days, and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. 
This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. So you get the creation of the Federal Election Commission to clarify and enforce these laws. And then you also get public financing for presidential general elections, all those sort of setups we talked about under the glossary section. So that's what you see those big amendments come after Watergate. But again, this is hard money. And so it has this huge loophole with soft money. There's no limit on how much anyone can spend when it's not directly attached to a candidate. So get out the vote. Issue advocacy are left totally unregulated. And this is where we see this pattern. We start to see this pattern of the Supreme Court coming in after Congress, co-equal branch, just let me insert that here, tries to do something and the Supreme Court comes and says, uh-uh. So they decide the case, Buckley v. Vallejo in 1976. And they basically try to split the baby. They say contribution limits are constitutional, but expenditure limits are are not. Contribution limits are constitutional because they combat the reality or appearance of improper influence without directly impinging on the rights of the individual citizens or candidates to engage in political debate and discussion. But expenditure limits, a.k.a. how much they can spend, are unconstitutional because they place substantial and direct restrictions on the ability of candidates, citizens, and associations from engaging in protected political expression. I hadn't read Buckley since law school, and I read it again this week. This decision is such a hot mess. It is Mm. bizarre because it is issued as a per curiam opinion, so you don't have authorship on it claimed. And there's so much interesting scholarship on, like, who really wrote it. (laughs) And justices join just in sections. So you have to really set up a diagram to know who is on board with which parts of Buckley. But this really sets up, this case sets up the debate that is going to haunt all of us to this day, which is, is money speech. Buckley says, in contrasting political money with a previous case about destroying a draft card. They say this, the expenditure of money simply cannot be equated with such conduct as destruction of a draft card. Some forms of communication made possible by the giving and spending of money involve speech alone. Some involve conduct primarily, and some involve a combination of the two. Yet this court has never suggested that the dependence of a communication on the expenditure of money operates itself to introduce a non-speech element or to reduce the exacting scrutiny required by the First Amendment. And they also say, virtually every means of communicating ideas in today's mass society require the expenditure of money. And so you're going to see Buckley and this idea just spinning and spinning in numerous Supreme Court cases thereafter. And this is like the least helpful 
case I can imagine to sit at the root of a really tough discussion. This is like building your house on a foundation of sand, I think. So we got lots of thoughts on the free speech aspect of this, but we're going to we're going to have a big discussion about that on Tuesday. So let's keep rolling through the history with 2002. We have McCain-Feingold, known as the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. And what they're really trying to get at with this legislation is the soft money problem. The fact that there's just unlimited flow funds allowed to flow through, quote unquote, party building activities. So McCain-Feingold puts a ban on soft money contribution to national parties and severely restricts electioneering communications by advocacy groups, organizations that get corporate or labor funding, can't run ads that refer to a particular candidate within 30 days of a primary or 60 days of a general. And they doubled the individual contribution limits and indexed them for inflation. And this is a direct reaction to that magic word language that we talked about that sits in a footnote in Buckley. So where Buckley is saying, okay, we're going to uphold some of the limitations from the FECA legislation, but here's how you get around that, which is what that footnote says. Now we have all this soft money and McCain-Feingold is like, okay, let's close that loophole, basically. In McConnell versus FEC, back to our friend Mitch. The Supreme Court largely upheld the McCain-Feingold legislation. McConnell was the majority whip at the time. He had been fighting John McCain in very personal and ugly terms about campaign finance reform. If you've been listening to the podcast Embedded, you have gotten a real sense of that tension between the two of them. So he joined the California Democratic Party and the NRA in suing the FEC to declare McCain-Feingold unconstitutional. This opinion was written by Justices Stevens and O'Connor, and they have this great line in it that says, money like water will always find an outlet, and the government must take steps to prevent corporate donors from finding ways to subvert the contribution limits. But this does show the court starting to chip away at finance, a campaign finance reform after that. Okay, so we have this decision, and then we have... More decisions. (laughs) We just stop there. Okay. So 2006, Vermont had some of the strictest caps on campaign contributions in the country. The Supreme Court rules them unconstitutional in Randall v. Sorrell, saying it was a violation of the First Amendment, but reaffirming the 1976 Buckley v. Vallejo decision. Okay. Then the next year, they changed courses again and begin to chip away at McCain-Feingold. The Federal Election Commission versus Wisconsin Right to Life. They reversed the view on issue ads in McConnell, saying that limits on electioneering spending by nonprofits was unconstitutional. That magic word test was brought back to life. Then in 2010, we have the infamous Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission decision that held that restrictions on political advertising in McCain-Feingold unconstitutionally infringe on the free speech rights of corporations and unions. This is the decision that said money is speech. Corporations are people entitled to speak under the First Amendment like anyone else. And it is the decision that we have been arguing about since 2010. So the facts of this case are very interesting. The Citizens United group had this movie. It was like Hillary the movie. It was all about how, you know, Hillary Clinton is terrible and we should never elect her. And basically because they took a little bit of corporate money and they were trying to put the movie 
on pay-per-view within that 30-day period that we talked about under McCain-Feingold, the FEC fined them or tried to prevent them from doing that. And I, I was listening to a legal expert that was like, I just wish the FEC had been like, eh, it's pay-per-view, it's fine. <laughs> because it's not, what's so interesting about Citizens United is it's not corporations making this argument. It's a advocacy group the other fun fact is that no corporations, zero corporations submitted an amicus brief arguing for this un, you know, constitutional right to donate as much money as humanly possible. And so they really they take this very tiny little problem with this advocacy group and they're within the 30 day period and they go way outside the facts of the case to issue this new law. And let me tell you who was not happy about it. <laughs> John Paul Stevens who wrote the decision, again, with Sandra Day O'Connor in the McConnell case. He says, Today's decision takes away a power that we have long permitted these branches to exercise. State legislators have relied on their authority to regulate corporate electioneering confirmed in Austin for more than a century. The federal Congress has relied on this authority for a comparable stretch of time, and it specifically relied on Austin throughout the years it spent developing and debating BCRA. The total record, it, when compiled, was 100,000 pages long, pulling out the rug beneath Congress after affirming the constitutionality of 203 six years ago shows great disrespect for a co-equal branch. After Citizens United, they chip away at the last sort of remaining parts of Buckley in McCutcheon v. FEC. It partly overturns Buckley and strikes down the FECE's aggregate limits on monetary contributions. So that's how much you can give in a year by individuals to multiple federal candidates, party committees, and non-candidates. McCutcheon was decided 5-4. The conservative majority struck down federal limits that capped aggregate campaign contributions during a single election cycle, limits that the court had upheld in the Buckley decision. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the four-justice plurality, that Buckley didn't control because that section of the opinion was old and it was not long enough and the parties at the time had not devoted enough time to separately address complex and specific issues. It was a plurality decision because Justice Thomas concurred in the judgment and he said, look, we should just outright overrule Buckley instead of trying to thread the needle that Justice Roberts tried to thread in this opinion. In the dissent, Justice Breyer criticized the conservatives for overruling the Buckley holding without a factual record, but based on its own view of the facts instead. This decision affects a pretty small pool of donors. Fewer than 600 donors hit the existing caps in the 2012 election cycle. The base limit for campaign contributions, 2,600 for individual candidates and 5,000 for PACs, remain in place. Okay, so we've gotten through the Supreme Court decisions. We see this pattern. Congress acts, Supreme Court overturns it. Where does that put us now? The current state, number four, the current state of campaign financing involves a lot of outside spending and a lot of dark money. So now our super PACs are political organizations that are just hanging out, taking in unlimited dollars, allegedly not coordinating with campaigns. And they do have to disclose their donors, but they can accept unlimited contributions from dark money nonprofits. So there's like a back door. You can funnel your money into a super PAC, disclose the identity 
of the nonprofit that money came from, but not disclose the individuals who are actually behind that nonprofit. In 2018, the majority of outside spending came from either dark money spenders or groups that take money from dark money sources. A record 38.8% of spending was partially disclosed as super PACs and other outside spending groups took in $176 million, which I think you have to say in that Austin Powers, Dr. Evil kind of way, (laughs) from dark money groups. Another lasting impact that we see in our current state of campaign finance in this country is the rising influence of mega donors. In 2010, the top individual donor gave about $7.6 million to candidates and groups. By 2012, when Sheldon and Miriam Adelson, who we've all know, we surely we all know because they just got a Congressional Medal of Honor. No, Presidential Medal of Honor, excuse me, gave out nearly 90. 90- Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. 
Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. $3 million to outside spending groups alone. Mega donors were always hamstrung by strict candidate and PAC contribution limits that remain in place today. But with super PACs, they can give as much as they want. And that's, I feel like, why we know the Koch brothers. That's why we talk about George Soros all the time. These mega donors, they have really become a huge part of the story. And it's not just that this money is anonymous. It's tax-free to these 501c organizations, which means that the taxpaying public is subsidizing political influence outside of the public financing system, which no one's using anymore because they can access so much more money outside of it. Mm -hmm. Popular opinion against Citizens United. It's not good. It's not good. (laughs) It's not great. 81 percent of surveyed individuals in a recent study supported a constitutional amendment overturning the court's decision. And the Democratic Party in particular is moving on this issue, saying they're a lot of candidates are saying they're not going to take any PAC money. Some are saying they're not going to take fossil fuel industry money or money from registered federal lobbyists. You have a handful foregoing support from super PACs of any kinds. Senator Sanders and Senator Warren have sworn off high-dollar private fundraisers. So we'll see. We'll see where this goes. And we'll talk on Tuesday's episode about the House of Representatives acting to continue developing a new body of campaign finance law. So stay tuned for HR1 talk on Tuesday. That's a tease, isn't it? (laughs) Stay tuned for (laughs) HR1. Get excited. (laughs) So number five, let's talk about what campaign finance looks like around the world, because that sometimes is really informative. So you have a lot of nations where there are no limits, no limits on spending, no limits on contributions. Australia, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Germany, Luxembourg, Norway, Spain, Sweden. Now, most of these countries have strict party discipline. It works very differently over there than it does here. So the members of the legislature are a little more interchangeable. You're not going to blow the bank on a legislator that could be gone the next year. You're going to put your money with the party that has a lot more influence. Also, a lot of these countries, TV advertising is always such a huge expense. And a lot of these countries either forbid advertising on television or give free TV time. So those no limits are a little bit different over there. Then you have nations that limit both spending and contributions. Belgium, Canada, Chile, France, Greece, Iceland, Japan, South Korea— There are other nations like this. And you have to remember, again, the systems are different. The rules are different. The parliamentary system in general really changes the game around elections. So Mm -hmm. it's important to acknowledge that there are nations that regulate their elections very closely. It's usually not just that they're regulating the money. They're regulating lots of aspects of how the campaigning process works. 
So you have nations that have limits on spending, but no limits on contribution, because if you can only spend so much, what's the point of donating a massive amount of money? Austria, Hungary, Italy, New Zealand, Slovakia, and the United Kingdom have spending limits. So I re- when I was reading some of the breakdown of these different countries, it's just us in Finland who do the contribution limits, but no spending limits. And I heard the excerpt was like, this is basically the worst of both worlds. Like if you're going to say we have no spending limits, but contribution limits, that means you have to hustle even harder fundraising-wise because there's no cap on how much you can spend to win. So to wrap back around to number one and thinking about that distinction between spending and contributions, other nations deal with that very differently. And it's just hard to put ourselves in context because there are only two countries in the world with more people than we have, China and India. We have such different systems. I can't imagine that we'd be like, let's borrow from Chinese or Indian elections on a grand scale to figure out how to reform our elections. We also are the fourth largest in terms of land area behind Russia, Canada, and China. And that matters because the cost of campaigning in a large geographic area is going to be higher than in a small geographic area. So we will be back on Tuesday to talk about what all this means, to talk about how we've handled this, what we think would work, how we feel about the current system. Send us all your thoughts. We know y'all have opinions on the current state of campaign finance. We'll be having a bigger conversation about that on Tuesday. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff. Cherry Haas, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.